Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Would you like to travel with What's Her Name Podcast? In 2023, we're planning two trips focusing on the lost women of history. In June, we're going to France. And in October, we are going to New England. If either of these sound like your jam, check out our website, whatsyournamepodcast.com. We are going to have an amazing time. This episode was sponsored by our patrons, Bryony Lyons, Bo Yeager, Rachel Kay, Jessica Smith, Tracy Steeb, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantelle Oliver, Tamzane Weir, Caitlin McTaggart, Stacey Frost, CJ Obrey, Hannah, and Caitlin Broadwater. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Happy Halloween, Olivia! <laughs> Happy Halloween! Scary season again! Hooray! And this time, we're going to 19th century Leiden in the Netherlands. Ooh! And while it is an incredibly gorgeous historic city, we are in the poor neighborhood, and it's scary. <laughs> we're talking cinematic Victorian poor. It's so filthy, so dangerous, that doctors and police usually don't even answer calls to the area. Sheesh! Thank goodness for Marie Swanenberg, who everyone called Huya Me, which means Good Marie. Ah. She's everybody's caretaker, the one you can count on to nurse you back to health when you can't take care of yourself. Oh no. And she is not afraid to move through the bleakest corners of Leiden. Huh. The hero we need in a place like this. I'm suspicious. Because <laughs> this is a Halloween episode. <laughs> Uh-oh. Somehow I feel like maybe she's not. Ah, perhaps you suspect that things are so bad here in this part of Leiden that if you were to wish someone dead, hmm, slowly poison them to death, say, Hmm. Who would ever find out? Yeah. In 1885, a physician weirdly answered the call to the bad part of town, where the Franquizen family had all fallen ill. And things just didn't add up. The doctor, like you, was suspicious. Hmm. Maybe he knew he was in a Halloween special. <laughs> he turns to their resilient, reliable nurse, Huyami and says, have you seen anyone suspicious in the house in the past few days? This is really weird. <laughs> and Huyumi gives him a creepy, piercing stare. And it was then that Huyumi was arrested. Ah. And the Leiden police began an investigation utilizing, for the first time, forensic techniques. Hey. Soon there was a mountain of evidence that Huyami 
everyone's nurse and best support, was actually, quite possibly, the most prolific serial killer of all time. Whoa. She almost got away with it. Wow. This is the story of how it all unfolded. And it strikes at the core of one of our deepest human fears, I think. Hmm. What if our friends are really our enemies? Hmm. What if evil masterfully disguises itself as good? And what if the people we most trust are the most dangerous threat of all? Hmm. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. This is going to be spooky, Olivia, so let's start with a gin and tonic. Mm. Dutch courage, so to speak. <laughs> oh, you're right. Should we sit here? This is cool. Yes, this is cool. I found myself very unexpectedly enlightened this year. Yes, very, very unexpectedly enlightened. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to get home from Ireland, and I ended up for three days <laughs> in Leiden. <laughs> Not bad, as delays go. Right. I picked a hotel because it was called the Hotel of the Women. The ladies. Hmm. It was a historic hotel. So I was like, well, that's the hotel for me, obviously. <laughs> and literally right underneath my attic room was a gin distillery <laughs> founded by sisters. Hey. And it's called Huyami Gin. And the whole <laughs> brand is based entirely on women in Dutch history. Wow. It felt like fate yeah so i just walked in the next morning and said so i have a podcast <laughs> and here is Josine heinen um well i'm i'm Josine heinen i am from uh, the netherlands from around leiden i uh, started this gin Ruimi gin named after a very um well noteworthy figure of dutch history and she was like a serial killer right but this is not in honor of her but just in honor of the whole time, of the story, of, of, of how uh, important this is for Dutch history and also how circumstances were in, um, uh, well, end of 19th century. Yeah. And when she was a child, a little book changed her life. And then there was this little booklet, it's actually over there, the little green booklet of famous people from Leiden. And then there was one about Ruimi. And even I couldn't read yet, but I saw this, uh, this head just looking at me from this book. So I was like, Dad, who's this? And then it was, well, this is a, a woman, uh, she, her name uh, was Mi, Ruimi, and she poisoned uh, a lot of people with, uh, with porridge. So I didn't eat porridge for a long time. And she didn't eat porridge for a long time. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Yosin would go on to eventually earn an MA in women's history. Hmm. I studied women history in first feminist wave. Cool. And what do you do with a degree in women's history? You start a gin company, right. obviously. <laughs> obviously. Puya <laughs> me, arsenic-free gin. <laughs> So she was born in 1839 as uh, Maria, uh, Mi was, was her name, and was very poor, moved around a lot, got, uh, the, the, they got kicked out of the house, moved again, etc., etc. It's hard for us today to imagine the reality of poverty in the 19th century. Mm. 
you only had one set of clothes, so when they were washed on Sunday, you would be naked all day with all your family inside, wait till your clothes were dry. You would uh, have minimal education, work uh, when you were 12 or 13, doing all kinds of chores, washing, going to serve in a, in a, in a, in a big house or whatever. Poor diets, no clean water. I guess a lot of your siblings would, would die, I think maybe 40 to 50%. Um, you would get married very young, mm. um, and I guess the, 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 the cycle would just repeat itself. Mm. Like that you would get evicted a lot, that uh, your children uh, uh, would, would die, uh, that um, you would live in poverty, had to work hard, a lot of, uh, of low-paid jobs. I think it's, it's also pretty tragic. Of course she was a criminal, but everything in her life was so... Um, very harsh. She got married. She had seven to nine kids, we're not sure, and three or maybe four survived, <laughs> which is typical for the time and place. Yep. So her name is good. What right. what good is she? What is she doing <laughs> to earn that name? Ah, she cares for everyone. Well, she takes care of everyone. She was really outgoing and helping everywhere and doing laundry, but then um, people also noticed that her own house was like a big mess and uh, her children were uh, you know, out on the streets. She was very nice, but very heartless, but she was just helping out everyone, but she, could, she was pretty, pretty harsh. When she was about 30, it all started going sideways. Approximately around uh, 1870, but no one really knows when she started uh, murdering people. And <laughs> we don't know how or why she started doing it. Hmm. A common legend says that her first victims were her parents. Wikipedia's got all kinds of bogus information, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> However, she did poison her in-laws. <laughs> Arsenic was her weapon of choice. Arsenic, a very poisonous uh, metal, and it was very efficient in protecting your house against uh, lice or uh, rats or whatever. And then um, it had to be sold as a paint because actually all over Europe, uh, arsenic had the nickname of inheritance powder. So people thought, you know, you, <laughs> you would slip it in someone's drink and then uh, it was untraceable. Uh, very effective, very cheap, and the symptoms were uh, of this acute arsenic poisoning were a lot like cholera. Uh, but it was so easy to pass off as an illness, especially mm. in the poor part of town. Sure. When when these people would die, she would say, "There's cholera in here. You better bury them very quickly. Stay away mm. from the body." You know, and people were just like, "Oh yeah." She did murder her victims with arsenic. So much that they would die in 24 hours. Uh, which and she's so good and brave to be nursing mm -hmm. people with cholera. Exactly. Wow. I guess local government was like, well, these are the poor people in poor neighborhoods, bad hygiene, so this uh, uh, is just normal. Nobody suspected her for 14 years. Wow. It was Huimi who was always taking care of everyone, but she was actually taking care of sick people and making them sicker had life insurance on their heads. Yeah, it was like wild. Yeah. Oh, okay, I was gonna ask, are these like mercy killings? Right. Nah, that's what I wanted to Is believe at first. Is this good? No. no. 
not. Uh, at the time you could insure someone else, but uh, it was not so common. And it was definitely not common to do it without people, without telling people that, hey, I got an insurance uh, on your head. <laughs> But, however, uh, in these poor neighborhoods, the people working for the insurance companies, they had to go by the houses every week to collect the, the cash. So then they didn't mind that uh, Hui Mi was keeping her own books, like, oh, I've gathered the payments from 30 people, and here it is. And so wow. when lost victims well, got, got identified like this, Huimi has something to do with it. The police went to all the insurance companies, got their books and just started comparing which people were insured and who paid their the money. And then it turned out that Huimi sometimes had her victims uh, like five, five different phones or something. She would scheme to get access to people and then she'd poison them just a little bit now they're seriously ill and they need a nurse mm. me to the rescue. She did this to over 100 people. Wow. With crazy stories, really, that even sometimes, like this one time, for instance, she um, put arsenic in the coffee of people attending a funeral of one of her victims and everyone got very sick. But only when people pieced together that it was Me that was deliberately poisoning everyone did they think, oh, you know, then I got very sick when I was attending this, this funeral. Others were uh, thinking about bones that they ate from their aunt me and that they got really sick or they, they felt it in their, in their throats. Because she was also nursing the people that she poisoned and then poisoning poison them even more, right? So um, it's also a very remarkable story that she was poisoning someone on their deathbed and then uh, dropped a little bit of milk with arsenic on the floor and the cat licked it and fell down dead immediately, right? And then after Huimi was arrested, people were thinking, all oh, right, this was my nephew and then his cat died and this was probably because he was poisoned. There was no victim profile. She could just uh, kill, kill everyone. Oh, but sometimes it was like uh, that someone made a joke about her on a, like a family party or something and then she said, well, you might be next, you know, and then they, they were next. <laughs> so sometimes it was also, I guess, a little bit vindictive. There was one uh, nephew of Humi actually, he was um, in the army. And she tried to poison him uh, and he went to the hospital, but because he was in the army, he went to the army hospital, which was generally better. Mm -hmm. And then Huimi uh, baked a buns for him that she uh, brought to him, but he was too sick to eat. So he handed them out to his friends who in turn got very sick. So these kind of stories, it was obvious that they were poisoned. <laughs> You're laughing about this now. It was, it was insane. Yeah. But then she would also sometimes tell other people like, oh, they were so sick, it was so funny, they were like uh, screaming and you should have been there. So she was also, she didn't really see uh, uh, 
like how terrible I guess that was what she was doing. fully evil. There were a lot of her victims who did survive. They were just like horrifically disabled for the rest of their lives. Oh, good. Um, but the most famous legend about her is that before she poisoned her victims, she would lean in and whisper in their ear, your face is killing me. <laughs> <laughs> was not thought possible that, that women would do these kind of things, right? You no, know, these are men, not, not women. So if she were, uh, she would have been a man, I guess she would have been caught sooner, but no one expected this from women. So mm. it's all these kind of, of patterns that you can actually still see today, I think. Yeah. Uh, everyone perceived her as the like top neighbor that you could always call to watch your kids or help you with laundry. But she, of course, did this to gain access to all the, the houses and all the families to murder them. <laughs> so in the end, she got a little bit too reckless and she started uh, poisoning a whole family. And that was the Franquizen family. <laughs> And their, their physician, bless him, he was a little <laughs> less blinded by sexism than everybody else. And he looked around and said, something's going on here. So 1885, she was finally arrested. It was world news. It was a global sensation. So because it was so um, controversial and, and so new that it was so closely documented. There are amazing newspaper articles but also illustrations from the time because oh. there in Leiden there was a newspaper that was especially for people who couldn't really read so it was just mm. images one of them is now the poster for Huyami Jin <laughs> <laughs> wow the trial of course was a sensation mm. also it's uh, the first time um, that forensic research was used in the Netherlands, in, in, the, in the courthouse. So it, it was also, it was called like the case of the century. 19th century, of course, but it was like world's, world famous. Wow. Order, order. I call to the stand, James Marsh. James Marsh was a British chemist who developed a new technique for detecting arsenic levels in people's livers. Mm. Even in dead bodies, even in long dead bodies, he could detect arsenic. Ooh, murderers shaking in their boots. Yeah, but it was so new. It wasn't like he had a lab where he'd do his work and then he'd share his results. Mm. He would do it right there in the courtroom in front of everybody. It was Whoa. such a spectacle. Wow, yeah. Please proceed. Dr. Marsh, we have here a number of livers exhumed from bodies in the cemetery. So they've got all these livers lined up in the courtroom. And Dr. Marsh Wait, finds... they've got... Wait, just... <laughs> I need to sit in that sentence for a second. They've got all these livers lined up in the courtroom. <laughs> yeah. This is courtroom drama on a new scale. Exactly! It was so new that it was actually done, like... 
uh, during the trial, just in, in the courthouse. There was this glass jars with livers, etc. Et just like uh, on, the, on the spot they did the test. Wow. And, and the grave diggers who exhumed the bodies testified that even the vermin around the coffins were dead. Wow. She was not messing around. No. And Dr. March finds this one test positive. Test another liver. This one test positive. <gasps> this one test positive. <gasps> With wow. each new test comes the revelation to people that were their family members that this person did not, in fact, die of cholera or typhus. They were murdered. Wow. And Huimi sat through the whole thing just stone-faced and silent. Wow. <laughs> Ooh. Huimi did not say anything about anything uh, at her trial. Oh. No, no motive, no reason. She was just silent all the time. And um, uh, only at the end of her trial, she uh, said to the judge that she asked if she could please have a merciful penalty. And then the judge said, well, um, your victims did not get this either. So oh. skip that. <laughs> um, and also her lawyer, uh, Fayant, he... Um, in his plea, he didn't even deny or made a plea of not guilty because it was it was so overwhelming, all the evidence. He did say that she was an anomaly of nature, erreur de la nature. Is this just come out of nowhere? I mean, serial killers don't usually just suddenly start murdering people there's usually warning signs were there warning signs before this happened with her no but it could just be because she's poor and there's no evidence and Mm. you know nobody was paying attention to her nobody had anything to say about it beforehand but nobody knows you're exterminating cats for years before Mm. yeah and i think that's why because usually we want the story to go that there was some kind of impetus that makes sense yeah and they just spun out of control so i think that's why wikipedia and so many people say she killed her parents because that kind of like gives it a a starting point mm. but that's not true now we know mm. and if there were warning signs probably her husband or her children maybe could have testified to that or said like well now that i think about it mm. but they called them to the stand. I call to the stand, husband of the accused, Johannes. Yes, yes, Johannes van der Linden. Uh, his occupation was um, carrying bags in the harbor. The police arrested him uh, because they thought he, he must have known or actually uh, been an accessory, but he didn't know anything um, uh, about Huimi's uh, profession. Wow. <laughs> and also... Um, during the trial, this was like the talk of the town. So then um, I read this very, um, I guess, heartbreaking letter in the local newspaper that someone wrote to the fellow Leidners to also please mind the, the kids uh, of, of Huimi and her husband, who would just everywhere where they went were hearing these, these terrible stories uh, for the kids and for her husband it must have been terrible that everyone was uh, was like what went on here why didn't you do something you know it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah mm-hmm. very tragic 
So um, he got released and he, he divorced. Wow. Crazy, huh? As more and more people are added to the list of potential victims, the reality sets in hard. Everyone in Leiden knew someone who was poisoned by Ruimi. All of this for insurance payouts. But that too presents such a puzzle because... But she was also uh, in a lot of debts when she was arrested. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a mystery. She continued to live her life in poverty. She didn't. She didn't spend any yeah, money. Yeah, where? Where's? Did I was going to ask when people noticed the money? Is she right. just sitting on no. money? Nobody knows to this day. We have no idea where that money went or what she did with it. Wow. If we calculate it to now, she would made four hundred thousand euros, uh, and then she was living really like on the. In, amongst the poorest of poor, right? So for her, it would have been a lot of money, hmm. but it was not found somewhere or spent or whatever. Maria Swanenberg, you have been found guilty of murder in the first degree three times. And even in the end, she was only convicted for three murders. <laughs> This was enough for a lifelong sentence uh, because there were two professors of the Leiden University already working a year and a half on, these, on this research, this Mars test. And then the students started complaining that their uh, classes were, uh, uh, were uh, dropping out all the time and that the professors were only working on, uh, on the research instead of teaching. So then they started to go back, decided to go back to university and teach uh, instead of going further with research because it was already enough for a lifelong conviction. Wow. Some people actually called for a reinstatement of the death penalty specifically for people like her, <laughs> but it didn't happen. She couldn't be held in Leiden prison because of people's rage, so yeah. she was moved to a nearby prison. And maybe they closed the case because everything it was dredging up i mean some of these are like 14 years old maybe mm. it was just too much yeah. they're like we know she was a monster and we can we're gonna put this behind us yeah but also like that means none of these families know if their loved one was murdered or not and mm -hmm. and it means the court doesn't have to address you know the underlying issues of poverty and oh sure squalor the circumstantial evidence was so strong for most cases that i think everybody knew if mm. their family members were cared for or even near who you me wow she killed them <laughs> wow so she went to prison and lighten got very silent around this whole case because people tried to forget It was really something that people did not really want to, uh, to talk about. And to me, this is a fascinating part of the tale. It was just too horrible. Mm. They moved forward, just locked that away in the past. <laughs> and it seems like a fundamentally human response to one of our fundamentally deepest fears. Yeah. Evil among us, disguised as good. It's the opposite yeah. of stranger danger. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, we just cannot go there. We just can't handle it. 
Well, that's why we got so obsessed with stranger danger in the 80s, because it's much easier to cope with the idea of stranger danger and teach skills and then to cope yeah. with danger in your home. Yeah, we want the threat to be the other. We want it to be some kind of outsider. Yeah, we can we can defend against that. We can yeah. build in fail-safes. And maybe yeah. that's why her story is so forgotten, because it's this, like, <laughs> blaring example of the reality that sometimes... Yeah the most horrifying enemy is right there in front of us. We just can't face it. Keep your porches clean and your laundry clean. Do not air it in public. (laughs) Right. We just, we're just not going to go there. Yeah. But we're going there in this episode. (laughs) She's so scary. I need a drink. I, I made this gin to put the story in a different uh, perspective to make it more known. Uh, also on the bottle it says like arsenic-free gin, you know. Of, oh, of course, ev- every gin so is arsenic-free, but it's just like the, also in the in the recipe, it's with uh, elderflower and elderberry. It's also poisonous if uncooked, and the green apple from Snow White, and you know we put all like this whole uh, poison story also in the recipe and in also uh, what do you call it it's, it's the cilantro is the seeds oh. of coriander yeah yeah because this was uh, in the time of Huimi, it was called the de- detoxicator of the poor and then it's this whole package about 19th century about living in in dutch cities where there was a lot of poverty disease uh, and then this is combined in one one character and and it's also pretty very appealing to people to uh, to learn about history in this way mm-hmm. like this is what what i also noticed when i just started out still as a hobby and then we were at this gin festival and we were telling about who you mean and then at this girl she was staring at the poster and then with this gin tonic in her hand she was like wow i did not know history was so interesting and fun and i was like well i i did know <laughs> so uh, yeah there was a reason to to uh, to go on yeah, yeah. For example, the history of gin itself. It's deeply rooted in Leiden, which I had no idea, (laughs) and it is fascinating. I don't know if you know this, it's a typically Dutch drink, and uh, Geneva, it's uh, Geneva, Geneva best, a juniper berry. So this was devised as a medicine in in the 15th century, it was patented in in Leiden, um, as a potion against stomach ache. (laughs) And then um, it was a very... Uh, popular, I think, like the the Dutch drink. In the- and it's actually from the Eighty Years' War when the Dutch were hugely outnumbered, but they still stood up to the Spanish. Hmm. Um, and the British mercenaries saw that, and um, and they called Geneva Dutch Courage. Dutch Courage. Dutch courage. Wow. Yeah, that's huh. where it's from. So they started importing it after the Eight Years' War, and then they called it Geneva or gin. Uh, but they did make one change to the recipe, where uh, in Geneva it's only the juniper berry, and in gin it's the juniper berry with a lot of other botanicals, from tea to cloves to whatever. So technically speaking, gin is from Leiden, <laughs> and this no is why we made uh, we made the gin here. It's so good. It's so good. I. It, your poison ingredients <laughs> are magic. Can I taste it? Oh, yeah. Can I taste yours? Julia mm-hmm. okay. Mi lived a long life in prison. She died in 1915 at age 76. Wow. 
But the grave is still there. She was buried in the burial site of this uh, uh, prison that she uh, was in, in uh, Gorinchem, Gorkum. It's a special uh, prison for, uh, for women. Wow. Historically, it's fascinating that we decided to forget a story like this. Hmm. Yeah, we love, we love us yeah. a serial killer. Yeah. Everyone knows Jack the Ripper, right? Yeah. Who murdered seven people. Uh, of course, his or her identity was never really revealed. It was a little bit later, so the, the telegraph had just been invented. So there was, was a lot quicker communication, you know? Uh, so everyone was following uh, like the news. But I think also a big difference is that people thought he was like a man and that Huimi was was woman. Because who would not know about a serial killer murdering 100 people, right? Yeah. I mean, this is also something that I sometimes think about. Like, what would we have in our history books now if, if Huimi was a man? Um, yeah. I think uh, it would have been much uh, more known. And often we bemoan, especially in this podcast, we bemoan that history overlooks powerful women, inspiring (laughs) women, pioneering women. But it is also true that we overlook serial killers (laughs) that would really paint women in a bad light. Yeah, we don't we won't want unladylike women either, either to praise or to condemn. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing. Being a woman doesn't make us all the same adjectives. Hmm. There are lost women in every social role in history. (laughs) And that's why I think history is so important because I see this kind of selection process. We've talked about this before. Mm. You know, you can't tell everyone's story. We have the power to choose the stories that we present from our collective past. And If we only choose the heroic, inspiring ones, the Mm. idealized ones, we're painting a very limited picture of the human condition and Mm. what what women are. Yeah. Women can be serial killers, too. (laughs) Oh. Hooray. Uh, for me also, like this was in 1885 and it was only a couple of years later that, that this uh, um, um, noble woman wrote like the, uh, the novel of the first feminist wave in Europe, right? Mm. This was like uh, uh, around, uh, it was 1889 and she was also very clever. This was Cecil Goekhoop, the Jong van Bekedonk. And you can immediately forget this, but this was... <laughs> Like she was in living in different circles. Her uh, family was wealthy. They were thinking about equality, about society, about uh, well the betterment of, of people. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, this Huimi with only a couple of years age difference. Also very, I guess, clever and uh, in a way outgoing or perceptive of society. But then she was born in a very poor area where the also the traditional role patterns of men and, and women were not uh, debated or discussed. There was no possibility even for, for a man to get out of there to get a proper education. I mean, it, it was such a different place to be born, and then uh, such different actions were were done by by these women. All the world's a stage, and the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, 
and one woman in her time could play an astonishingly villainous part. <laughs> she facilitated a lot of early exits. Mm-hmm. The end. Creepy. Special thanks to Yozin Hainian and Tessa, her intern, at Huyami Jin. Next time you're in Leiden, stop in and check out the incredible space and hashtag have a drink with me. Music for this episode was composed by Roman Cano, Kevin McLeod, Camille Sanson, Esther Abrami, Aaron Kenny, and Daniel Foster Smith. If you're interested in listening to a special bonus track, I visited the Leiden City archives and got to leaf through all the records from the investigation into Huyami. Absolutely amazing, especially because they were once thought to be lost in a fire. If you want to geek out with me over paperwork, nothing fancy, visit the show notes for that download. And if you read Dutch, there's a new biography out about Huyami. Consider traveling with us in 2023. The Lost Women of France is happening for 10 days in June and the Women's History of New England for 10 days in peak fall in October. Check out our website, whatshernamepodcast.com for links to the music, the books, and more information about the tours. Thank you so much for donating and thank you for listening. Happy Halloween.